Chapter Six of the Jesus of History by T. R. Glover. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six, Jesus and Man. When, on his last journey, Jesus came in sight of Jerusalem, Luke tells us that he wept. There is an obvious explanation of this in the extreme tension under which he was living. Everything turned upon the next few days, and everything would be decided at Jerusalem. But while he must have felt this, it cannot have been the cause of his weeping, nor should we look for it altogether in the appeal which a great city makes to emotion. Dull would he be of soul who could pass by, a sight so touching in its majesty. Yet it was not the architecture that so deeply moved Jesus. The temple, which was full in view, was comparatively new and foreign. There is little suggestion in the Gospels that art meant anything to him. Perhaps it meant little to the writers. As for the temple, he found it a den of thieves, and he prophesied that it would be demolished, and all of its splendid buildings, its goodly stones and votive offerings, which so much impressed his disciples, not one stone would be left upon another stone. But the traditions of Jerusalem wakened thoughts in him of the story of his people, thoughts with a tragic colour. Jerusalem was the place where prophets were killed, the scene and centre at once of Israel's deepest emotions, highest hopes, and most awful failures. Oh, Jerusalem! Jerusalem! he had said in sadness as he thought of Israel's holy city, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. And now he is in sight of Jerusalem. The city and the temple suddenly meet his view as he reaches the height and he is deeply moved. Any reflective mind might well have been stirred by the thought of the masses of men gathered there. Nothing is so futile as an arithmetical numbering of people, for after a certain point figures paralyse the imagination, and after that they tell the mind little or nothing. But here was actually assembled the Jewish people, coming in swarms from all over the world for the feast. Here was Judaism at its most pious. Here was the pilgrim centre, with all it meant of aspiration and blindness, of simple folly and gross sin. The sight of the city, the doomed city as he foresaw, the thought of his people, their zeal for God, and their alienation from God, it all comes over him at once, and with a sudden rush of feeling he apostrophizes Jerusalem. If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. But now they are hid from thine eyes. Thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. It is quite plain from the Gospels that crowds had always an appeal for Jesus. At times he avoided them, but when they came about him, they claimed him and possessed him. Over and over again we read of his pity for them. 
he saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them of his thought for their weariness and hunger his reflection that they might faint by the way on their long homeward journeys and his solicitude about their food whatever modern criticism makes of the story of his feeding multitudes it remains that he was markedly sensitive to the idea of hunger jairus is reminded that his little girl will be the better for food the rich are urged to make feasts for the poor the maimed and the blind the owner of the vineyard in the parable pays a day's wage for an hour's work when an hour was all the chance that the unemployed labourer could find no sanctity could condone for the devouring of widows houses the great hungry multitudes haunt his mind the story of the rich young ruler shows this here was a man of birth and education whose face and whose speech told of a good heart and conscience a man of charm of the impulsive type that appealed to jesus jesus looked on him we read the words recall plato's picture of socrates looking at the jailer how he looked up at him in his peculiar way like a bull the old man's prominent eyes were fixed on the fellow glaring through the brows above them and socrates friends saw them and remembered them when they thought of the scene as jesus's eyes rested steadily on this young man the disciples saw in them an expression they knew jesus looking on him loved him their talk was of eternal life and no doubt to his surprise jesus asked the youth if he had kept the commandments how did he stand as regarded murder theft adultery the steady gaze followed the youth's impetuous answer and then came the recommendation to sell all that he had and give to the poor and come follow me at this we read in a fragment of the gospel according to the hebrews preserved by origin the rich man began to scratch his head and it did not please him and the lord said to him how sayest thou the law i have kept and the prophets for it is written in the law thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself and behold many who are thy brethren sons of abraham are clad in filth and dying of hunger and thy house is full of many good things and nothing at all goes out from it to them and he turned and said to simon his disciple who was sitting beside him simon son of john it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven we need not altogether reject this variant of the story but it was more than the physical needs of the multitude that appealed to jesus man's unhappiness as i construe says teufelstrock in sartorisatus comes of his greatness it is because there is an infinite in him which with all his cunning he cannot quite bury under the finite will the whole finance ministers and upholsterers and confectioners of modern europe undertake in joint stock company to make one shoe black happy we read in a passage which it is true is largely symbolic that one of jesus's quotations from the old testament was that man shall not live by bread alone hunger is a real thing horribly real but it is comparatively easy to deal with and man has deeper needs the shoe black 
according to Teufelsdruck, wants God's infinite universe altogether to himself. In the simpler words of Jesus, he is never happy till he says, I will arise and go to my father. This craving for the father, the men of Jesus's day tried to fill with the law, and when the law failed to satisfy it, they had nothing further to suggest, except their fixed idea that God heareth not sinners. They despaired of the great masses, and left them alone. They did not realise, as Jesus did, that the Father also craves for his children. When Jesus saw the simpler folk thus forsaken, the picture rose in his mind of sheep, worried by dogs or wolves, till they fell, worn out. Sheep, without a shepherd. Everyone remembers the shepherd of the parable, who sought the one lost sheep until he found it, and how he brought it home on his shoulders. But there is another parable, we might almost say, of ninety-nine lost sheep, a parable not developed but implied in the passage of Matthew, and it is as significant as the other, for our good shepherd has to ask his friends to help him in this case. The appeal that lay in the sheer misery and helplessness of masses of men was one of the foundations of the Christian church. The Good Shepherd, by the way, is a phrase from the fourth gospel, but we think most often of the Good Shepherd as carrying the sheep, and that comes from Luke, and is in all likelihood nearer the parable of Jesus. It is worth noticing that Jesus stands alone in refusing to despair of the greater part of mankind. Contempt was in his eyes the unpardonable sin. How swift and decisive is his anger with those who make others stumble. The parable of the lost sheep reveals what he held to be God's feeling for the hopeless man. And, as we have seen, his constant aim is to lead men to think like God. The lost soul matters to God. He sums up his own work in the world in much the same language as he uses about the shepherd in the parable. The Son of Man is come to seek and save that which is lost. The taunt that he was the friend of publicans and sinners really described what he was and wished to be. God was their heavenly Father. The sight, then, of the masses of his countrymen, like worried sheep, worn, scattered, lost and hopeless, waked in him no shade of doubt. On the contrary, it was further proof to him of the soundness of his message. Changing his simile, he told his disciples that the harvest was great, but the labourers few, and he asked them to pray the Lord of the harvest to thrust forth labourers into his harvest. The very name, Lord of the harvest, implies faith in God's competence and understanding. From the first, he seems to have held up before his followers that this wide service was to be their work. Come ye after me, he said, and I will make you to become fishers of men. Men who should really catch men. Like all for whom the world has had a meaning, Jesus, as we have seen, accepted the necessary conditions of man's life. Human misery and need were widespread, but God's fatherhood was of compass fully as wide, and Jesus relied upon it. Your heavenly Father knows, he said, and with God all things are possible. 
the very miseries of the oppressed and hopeless people added grounds to his confidence people who had touched bottom in sounding the human spirit's capacity for misery were for him the ripe harvest only needing to be gathered he understood them and he knew that he had the healing for all their troubles with full assurance of the truth of his words he cried come unto me all ye that labour and are heavy laden and i will give you rest he spoke of a rest which careless familiarity obscures for us what understanding and sympathy he shows when he adds my yoke is easy and my burden is light misery poverty and hunger he had found taught men to see realities the hungry at least were not likely to mistake a stone for bread they had a ready test for it on which they could rely poverty threw open the road to the kingdom of god the clearing away of all temporary satisfactions of all that cloaked the soul's deepest needs prepared men for real relations with the greatest reality with god so that jesus boldly said blessed are ye poor blessed are ye that hunger now blessed are ye that weep now but he had no idea that they were always to weep if it was his to care for men's hunger it was not likely that he would have no comfort for their tears ye shall find rest unto your souls they shall be comforted it was in large part upon the happiness which he was going to bring to the poor that jesus based his claim to be heard there is little reasonable ground for doubt that he healed diseases of course we cannot definitely pronounce upon any individual case reported the diagnosis might be too hasty and the trouble other than was supposed but it is well known that such healings do occur and that they occurred in jesus's ministry we can well believe so when he was challenged as to his credentials he pointed to misery relieved and the culmination of everything the crowning feature of his work he found in his good news for the poor the phrase he borrowed from isaiah but he made it his own the splendid promises in isaiah for the poor the broken-hearted captives blind and bruised appealed to him time has laid its hand upon his word and dulled its freshness gospel and evangelical are no longer words of sheer happiness like jesus good news they are technical terms used in handbooks and in controversy while for jesus the good news for the poor was a new word of delight and inspiration the centre in all the thoughts of jesus as we have to remind ourselves again and again is god if as dr d s cairns puts it jesus christ is the great believer in man it is if we are reading him aright at all because god believes in man let us remind ourselves often of that thou hast made us for thyself said augustine in the famous sentence of which we are apt to emphasize the latter half and our heart knows no rest till it rests in thee jesus would have us emphasize the former clause as well and believe it the keynote of his whole story is god's love the father is a real father strange that one should have to write the small f to get the meaning 
all that jesus has taught us of god we must bring to bear on man for it is hard to believe in man what is man that thou shouldst magnify him and that thou shouldst set thine heart upon him quotes the author of job in a great ironical passage the elements and the stars come over us as they came over george fox and the vale of beaver what is man can one out of fifteen hundred millions of human beings living on the one planet matter to god when there are so many planets and stars and there have been so many generations can he matter it all depends on how we conceive of god here it is essential to give all the meaning to the term god that jesus gave to it to believe in god as jesus believed in god if we are to understand the fullness of jesus's good news it all depends on god on whether jesus was right about god and after all on jesus himself a thing of price is man wrote synesius about 410 bc because for him christ died the two things go together jesus's death and jesus's theocentric thought of man it is a familiar criticism of idealists and other young hearts that it is easy to idealize what one does not know omne ignotum pro magnifico is the old epigram of tacitus it is not every believer in man nor every friend of man who knows men as jesus did like burns and carlyle and others who have interpreted man to us to some purpose he grew up in the home of labouring people he was a working man himself a carpenter he must have learnt his carpentry exactly as every boy learns it by hammering his fingers instead of the nail sawing his own skin instead of the wood and not doing it again he knew what it was to have an aching back and sweat on the face how hard money is to earn and how quickly it goes he makes it clear that money is a temptation to men and a great danger but he never joins the moralists and cranks in denouncing it he always talks sense if the expression is not too lowly to apply to him he sees what can be done with money what a tool it can be in a wise man's hands how he can make friends by means of the mammon of unrighteousness for example by giving unexpectedly generous wages to men who missed their chances by feeding lazarus at the gate and perhaps by having his sores properly attended to that he understood how pitifully the loss of a coin may affect a household of working people one of his most beautiful parables bears witness with work he had no quarrel he draws many of his parables from labour and he implies throughout that it is the natural and right thing for man to be holy in his sense a man need not leave his work clement of alexandria in his famous saying about the ploughman continuing to plough and knowing god as he ploughs and the seafaring man sticking to his ship and calling on the heavenly pilot as he sails is in the vein of jesus there were those whom he called to leave all to distribute their wealth and to follow him but he chose them it was not his one command for all men but as we shall shortly see it is implied by his judgments of men that he believed in work and he liked men who put their backs into it their backs eyes 
and their brains too. Pain, the constant problem of man, and perhaps more of woman, of unmarried woman more especially, he never discussed as modern people discuss it. He never made light of pain any more than of poverty. He understood physical as well as moral distress, nor did he, like some of his contemporaries and some modern people, exaggerate the place of pain in human experience. He shared pain, he sympathised with suffering, and his understanding of pain, and above all his choice of pain, taught men to reconsider it, and to understand it, and altered the attitude of the world towards it. His tenderness for the suffering of others taught mankind a new sympathy, and the Nosocomion, the hospital for the sick, was one of the first Christian institutions to rise when persecution stopped and Christians could build. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them, says Matthew, in a memorable phrase. I have heard it suggested that it was irregular for them to come into the temple courts, but they gravitated naturally to Jesus. The mystic is never quite at leisure for other people's feelings and sufferings. He is, essentially, an individualist. He must have his own intercourse with God, and other people's affairs are apt to be an interruption, an impertinence. I have not been thinking of the community, I have been thinking of Christ, said a Bengali to me, who was wavering between the Brahma Samaj and Christianity. The blessed Angela of Foligno was rather glad to be relieved of her husband and children, who died, and left her leisure to enjoy the love of God. All this is quite unlike the real spirit of the historical Jesus. Himself took our infirmities and bare our sickness, was a phrase of Isaiah that came instinctively to the minds of his followers. Perhaps, when we begin to understand what is meant by the Incarnation, we may find that omnipotence has a great deal more to do than we have supposed with natural sympathy and the genius for entering into the sorrows and sufferings of other people. One side of the work of Jesus must never be forgotten. His attitude to woman has altered her position in the world. No one can study society in classical antiquity or in non-Christian lands with any intimacy and not realise this. Widowhood in Hinduism, marriage among Muslims, they are proverbs for the misery of women. Even the Jew still prays, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who hast not made me a woman. The Jewish woman has to be grateful to God, because he hath made me according to his will. A thanksgiving with a different note, as the modern Jewess, Amy Levy, emphasised in her brilliant novel, where her heroine, very like herself, corrected her prayer book to make it more explicit. Cursed art thou, O Lord our God, who hast made me a woman. Paul must have known these Jewish prayers, for he emphasised that in Christ there is neither male nor female. Paul had his views. The familiar old ways of Tarsus inspired them, as to women's dress and deportment, especially the veil. But he struck the real Christian note here, and laid stress on the fact of what Jesus had done, and is doing, for women. There is no reference made by Jesus to a woman that is not respectful and sympathetic. He never warns men against women. 
even the most degraded women find in him an amazing sympathy for he has the secret of being pure and kind at the same time his purity has not to be protected it is itself a purifying force he draws some of his most delightful parables from women's work as we have seen it is recorded how when he spoke of the coming disaster of jerusalem he paused to pity poor pregnant women and mothers with little babies in those bad times critics have remarked on the place of woman in luke's gospel and some have played with fancies as to the feminine sources whence he drew his knowledge did the women who ministered to jesus joanna for instance the wife of chooser tell him these illuminative stories of the master in any case jesus's new attitude to women is in the record and it has so reshaped the thought of mankind and made it so hard to imagine anything else that we do not readily grasp what a revolution he made here as always by referring men's thoughts back to the standard of god's thoughts and supporting what he taught by what he was mark has given us one of our most familiar pictures of jesus sitting with a little child on his knee and in the crook of his arm the greek participle which gives this in mark is worth remembering it is vivid enough mothers brought their children to him that he should put his hands on them and pray matthew says that children took part in the triumphal entry and jesus clear as he was how little the hosannas of the grown people meant seems to have enjoyed the children's part in the strange scene classical literature and christian literature of those ages offer no parallel to his interest in children the beautiful words suffer little children to come unto me are his and they are characteristic of him and he speaks of god's interest in children once more a reference of everything to god to get it in its true perspective how jesus likes children for their simplicity their intuition their teachableness we say but was it not perhaps for far simpler and more natural reasons just because they were children and little and delightful we forget his little brothers and sisters or we eliminate them for theological purposes jesus lays quite an unexpected emphasis on sheer tenderness on kindness to neighbour and stranger the instinctive humanity that helps men if it be only by the swift offer of a cup of cold water the good samaritan came as a surprise to some of his hearers it is our religion said a hindu to a missionary to explain why he and other hindus did not help to rescue a fainting man from the railway tracks nor even offer water to restore him when the missionary had hauled him onto the platform unaided not so the religion of jesus bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfil the law of christ wrote paul pursue hospitality and as we shall see in a later chapter the last judgment itself turns on whether a man has kindly instincts or not matthew quotes to describe jesus's own tenderness the impressive phrase of isaiah a bruised reed shall he not break if it is urged that such things are natural to man do not even the publicans do the same jesus carries the matter a long way further whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile go with him twain the man who would use such compulsion would be the alien soldier the hireling of herod or of rome 
and who would wish to cart him and his goods even one mile go two miles says jesus or if the syriac translation preserves the right reading go two extra why well the soldier is a man after all and by such unsolicited kindness you may make a friend even of a government official not always an easy thing to do at any rate you can help him god helps him be ye therefore perfect even as your father which is in heaven is perfect ordinary kindness and tenderness could hardly be urged beyond that point and yet jesus goes further still he would have us pray for those that despitefully use us and in no pharisaic way but with the same instinctive love and friendliness that he always used himself father forgive them for they know not what they do there are religions which inculcate the tolerance of wrong aiming at equanimity of mind or acquisition of merit but jesus implies on the contrary that in all this also the christian denies himself does not seek even in this way to save his own soul but forgets all about it in the service of others though he finds by and by with a start that he has saved it far more effectually than he could have expected the emphasis falls on our duty of kindness and tenderness to all men and women because we and they are alike god's children with his emphasis on tenderness we may group his teaching on forgiveness he makes the forgiving spirit an antecedent of prayer when ye stand praying forgive if ye have aught against any that your father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses if thou bring thy gift to the altar and there rememberest thy brother hath aught against thee leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way first be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift the parable of the king and his debtor painfully true to human nature brings out the whole matter of our forgiveness of one another into the light we are shown it from god's outlook the teaching as ever is theocentric to peter jesus says that a man should be prepared to forgive his brother to seventy times seven if anybody can keep count so far he sees how quarrels into life and alienate a man from god hence comes the famous saying resist not evil but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek turn to him the other also he would have men even avoid criticism of one another epigrams are seductive and there is a fascination in the dissection of character but there is always a danger that a clever characterization a witty label may conclude the matter that a possible friendship may be lost through the very ingenuity with which the man has been labelled who might have been a friend it is not a small matter in jesus's eyes he puts his view very strongly and as we must always remember he bases himself on fact we may lose a great deal more than we think by letting our labels stand between us and his words by our habit of calling them paradoxes and letting them go at that it is worth while to look at the type of character that he admires modern painters have often pictured jesus as something of a dreamer a long-haired sleepy abstract kind of person 
what a contrast we find in the energy of the real jesus in the straight and powerful language which he uses to men in the sweep and range of his mind in the profundity of his insight the drive and compulsiveness of his thinking in the venturesome of his actions how many of the parables turn on energy the real trouble with men he seems to say is again and again sheer slackness they will not put their minds to the thing before them whether it be thought or action thus for instance the parable of the talents turns on energetic thinking and decisive action these are the things that jesus admires in the widow who will have justice in the virgins who thought ahead and brought extra oil in the vigorous man who found the treasure and made sure of it in the friend at midnight who hammered 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 till he got his loaves in the violent who take the kingdom of heaven by force in the man who will hack off his hand to enter into life even the bad steward he commends because he definitely put his mind on his situation as we shall see later on indecision is one of the things that in his judgment will keep a man outside the kingdom of god that will make him unfit for it the matter deserves more study than we commonly give it you must have a righteousness he says which exceeds the righteousness of the pharisees and the pharisees were professionals in righteousness his tests of discipleship illumine the ideal of his character theocentric thinking negation of self the thought-out life he will have his disciples count the cost reckon their forces calculate quietly the risks before them right up to the cross like john bunyan in bedford jail where he thought things out to the pillory and thence to the gallows so that if it came to the gallows he should be ready as he says to leap off the ladder blindfold into eternity that is the energy of mind that jesus asks of men that he admires in men on the other side he is always against the life of drift the half thought out life there they were he says in the days of noah eating and drinking marrying dreaming and the floods came and destroyed them so ran the old familiar story and says jesus it is always true men will drift and dream forever heedless of fact heedless of god and then ruin life gone the soul lost the son of man come and you yourselves thrust out it is quite striking with what a variety of impressive pictures jesus drives home his lesson there is the person who everlastingly says and does not do who promises to work and does not work who receives a new idea with enthusiasm but has not depth enough of nature for it to root itself who builds on sand that mr anything of bunyan's allegory nor these alone for jesus is as plain on the unpunctual the easy-going the sort that compromises that tries to serve god and mammon all the practical half-and-half -half people that take their bills quickly and write fifty that offer god and man about half what they owe them of thought and character and action and bid others do the same and count themselves men of the world for their acuteness and to do them justice jesus commends them they have taken the exact measure of things in their generation their mistake lies in their equation of the fugitive and the eternal 
and it is the final and fatal mistake according to jesus and a very common one forgetfulness of god in fact a mistake that comes from not thinking things out jesus will have men think everything out to the very end he never says come unto me all ye who are too lazy to think for yourselves it is energy of mind that he calls for either with me or against me he does not recognize neutrals in his war he that is not against us is for us he that is not with me is against me where does a man's will point him that is a question out of the abundance the overflow of the heart the mouth speaketh what is it that a man wills purity or impurity it is the inner energy that makes a man what he says and does is an overflow from what is within an overflow it is true with a reaction it is what a man chooses and what he wills that jesus always emphasizes god knoweth your hearts very well then does a man choose god that is the vital issue does he choose god without reserve and in a way that god knowing his heart will call a whole-hearted choice st augustine in a very interesting passage remarks upon the fact that when the mind commands the body obedience is instantaneous but that when it commands itself it meets with resistance the mind commands that the mind shall will it is one and the same mind and it does not obey he finds the reason the mind does not absolutely and entirely will the thing and so it does not absolutely and entirely command it there is nothing strange after all in all this he says partly to will partly not to will but it is a weakness of the mind that it does not arise in its entirety uplifted by truth because it is borne down by habit thus there are two wills because one of them is not complete the same thought is to be traced in the teaching of jesus it is implied in what he says about prayer there is a want of faith a half-heartedness about men's prayers they pray as augustine says he himself did give me chastity and continence but not now that is not what jesus means by prayer the utterance of the half-will nor is it this sort of surrender to god that jesus calls for no the question is how thoroughly is a man going to put himself into god's hands does he mean to be god's up to the cross and beyond does he enlist absolutely on god's terms without a bargain with god prepared to accept god's will whatever it is whether it squares with his liking or not are his own desires finally out of the reckoning does he in fact deny negate himself jesus calls for disciples with questions so penetrating on his lips what a demand to make of men what faith too in men it shows that he can ask all this with no hint of diminished seriousness jesus is the great believer in men as we saw in his choice of the twelve to that group of disciples he trusts the supremest task men ever had assigned to them not many wise not many mighty paul found at corinth and it has always been so is it not still the gist of the gospel 
that Jesus believes in the writer and the reader of these lines, trusts then with the propagation of God's kingdom. Incredible commission! Jesus was always at leisure for individuals. This was the natural outcome of his faith in men. What else is the meaning of his readiness to spend himself in giving the utmost spiritual truth? No easy task, as experience shows us, even to a solitary listener. If we accept what he tells us of God, we can believe that the individual is worth all that Jesus did and does for him, but hardly otherwise. His gift of discovering interest in uninteresting people, says Phillips Brooks, was an intellectual habit that he gave to his disciples. We think too much like men. He would have us think like God, and think better of odd units and items of humanity than statesmen and statisticians are apt to do. It has been pointed out lately how fierce he is about the man who puts a stumbling block in the way of even a little one. Better for him that a millstone were hanged round his neck, and he were cast into the sea. No mere phrase, for when he draws a picture, he sees it. He sees this scene, and better so for him too, is his comment. There was, as we may remember, a view current in antiquity, that when a man was drowned, his soul perished with his body, though I do not know if the Jews held with this opinion. It is not likely that Jesus did. What is God's mind, God's conduct, towards those people whom men think they can afford to despise? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And to whom did he say this? To the most ordinary people, to Peter and James and John, for all sorts of people he held up this impossible ideal of a perfection, like God's. What a faith in man it implies! All things are possible to him that believes. Why should not you believe, he says? His faith in the soul's possibilities is boundless, and in marked contrast with what men think of themselves. A man, for instance, will say that he has done his best, but nine times out of ten it means mere fatigue. He is not going to trouble to do any more. How can a man know that he has done his best? The gospel of Jesus comes with its message of the grace of God and the power of God to people who are stupid and middle-aged, who are absolutely settled in life, who are conscious of their limitations, who know they are living in a rut and propose to stick to it for the remainder of their days. And Jesus tells them, in effect, that he means to give them a new life altogether, that he means to have from them service, perfectly incredible to them. No man, he suggests, need be so inured to the stupidity of middle age, but there may be a miraculous change in him. A great many people need reconversion at forty, however Christian they have been before. This belief of his in the individual man, and in the worth of the individual, is the very charter of democracy. The original writings of William Tyndale, who first translated the New Testament from Greek into English, contain the essential ideas of democracy already in 1526, the outcome of familiar study of the Gospel. Jesus himself said of Herod, Go and tell that fox! Herod was a king, but he was not above criticism, and Christians have not failed at times to make the criticism of the great that truth requires. 
Jesus had no illusions about men. He sees the weak spots. He recognizes the whited sepulchre. He is astonished at the unbelief of men and women. He does not understand why they cannot think. But he notes how they see, and yet do not see, hear and do not understand. He is impressed by their falsity, even in religion. He knows perfectly well the evil of which the human heart is capable. A man, who steadily looks towards being crucified by the people he is trying to help, is hardly one of the absent-minded enthusiasts, miscalled idealists. There never was, we feel, one who so thoroughly looked through his friends, who loved them so much, and yet without a shade of illusion. This brings us to the subject of the next chapter. In the meantime, let us recall what he makes of the wasted life. In thinking of the case, said Seeley, they had forgotten the woman, a common occurrence with those who deal in cases. It was once severely said of the head of a college that, if he would not leave off caring for his students' souls and care for them, he would do better. Jesus does not forget the man in caring for his soul. He likes him. He is the friend of publicans and sinners. He eats and drinks with them. Let us remember again that these were taunts and were meant to sting. They were not conventional phrases. See how he can enter into the life of a poor creature. There is the wretched little publican Zacchaeus, a squalid little figure of a man whom people despised. He was used to contempt. It was the portion of the tax collector enlisted in Roman service against his own people. Jesus comes and sees him up in the tree. He instantly realises what is happening and invites himself to the house of Zacchaeus as a guest. Something passes between them without spoken word. The little man slides down the tree, not a proceeding that makes for dignity, and then, with all his inches, he stands up before the whole town that knew him so well in a new moral grandeur that adds cubits to his stature. Half my goods, he says, I will give to the poor. If I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, he shall have it back fourfold. That man belonged to the despised classes. Jesus came into his life. The man became a new man a pioneer of Christian generosity. Again, there is the woman with the alabaster box, the mere possession of which stamped her for what she was. It was simply a case of the wasted life. I have long wondered if she meant to give him only some of the ointment. A little of it would have been a great gift. But perhaps the lid of the box jammed, and she realised in a moment that it was to be all or nothing. She drew off her sandal and smashed the box to pieces. However she broke it, and whatever her reasons, Mark's words mean that it was thoroughly and finally shivered. Something had happened which made this woman the pioneer of the Christian habit of giving all for Jesus. The disciples said they had done so, but they were looking for thrones in exchange. She was not. The thief on the cross himself becomes a pioneer for mankind in the Christian way of prayer. Jesus, remember me, he says. How is it that Jesus comes into the wasted life and makes it new? One loving heart sets another on fire.
with all his wide outlook on mankind his great purpose to capture all men jesus is remarkable for his omission to devise machinery or organization for the accomplishment of his ends the tares are left to grow with the wheat as if jesus trusted the wheat a good deal more than we do alive as he is to the evil in human nature he never tries to scare men from it and he seems to have been very little afraid of it he believed in the power of good because after all god is lord of the harvest he invents no special methods a loving heart will hit the method needed in the particular case the holy spirit will teach this as well as other things how far he even organized his church or left it to organize itself if it so wished students may discuss would he have trusted even the best organized church as such does not what we mean by the incarnation imply putting everything in the long run on the individual quickened into new life by a new relationship with god and taught a new love of men by jesus himself the heart of friendship and the heart of the incarnation are in essence the same thing giving oneself in frankness and love to him who will accept and by them winning him who refuses has not this been the secret of the spread of the gospel the simplicity of the whole thing and the power of it grow upon us as we study them but after all as tertullian has said simplicity and power are the constant marks of god's work simplicity in method power in effect End of chapter 6